Our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 26. It's located in your church Bibles on page 973. Please stand, if you are able, as we read from the New Testament. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Please be seated. I must say, uh, Kurt and I and the music team are relieved to see you this morning. You have faced two hurdles in reaching church. We were saying this particularly to the early service. You guys get partial credit. With so many away at the women's retreat this weekend and with the change with the clocks, I think particularly of those uh, men who have brought their children somehow to worship this morning. Uh, God has done a good thing. So thank you for coming. We're continuing um, to look at the letter to the Galatians. And so let's pray and ask that God would open our eyes to it. Father, we praise you for so many things. But we have to thank you for this, that you have not left us as orphans. You have not abandoned us. You have not left us to our own devices. But by your spirit this morning, you have shown us and told us that you are with us and that you will speak to us, to each of our hearts, as we listen to you by your Spirit. And so this is our prayer with the psalmist. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. And that particular wondrous thing being the Lord Jesus himself, who has kept your law. In Christ's name, amen. So we're continuing our series, as I said, looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians. What have we learned so far? The law cannot make you right with God. Only trusting in what Christ has done on your behalf through faith can. That's where Kurt left us last Sunday, verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles and to you and to me. So in this next passage, the one that Rene just read to us, Paul comes then to contrast the gospel and the law, but he unpacks it in a different way, comparing the law 
to a kind of jailer. With most of the women away this morning, um, I thought I'd risk an illustration from uh, science fiction. I usually get from some quarters some eye rolling at this point, but uh, I've expected from the male members of the congregation some grunts of approval. There's a series coming out on Apple TV in May, which is the serialization of a science fiction classic by a man called Hugh Howey. It's called Silo. If you've read the books, the first one is Wool. And uh, here it is on its promotional poster with the tagline, the truth will surface, which is a small clue to the plot. The story is set in an apocalyptic future where the lone survivors of the human race, as they believe, are hunkered down, really imprisoned in a converted missile silo somewhere in the Midwest. And the people who run the silo have ingrained into the heads of those who live there that the silo is all there is and all that there ever will be. And perhaps predictably, the story runs through the experiences of various people who attempt to break out of the silo to discover whether there is life outside and to see if there's anyone else there, whether there's freedom. And at one moment of realization, one of the characters tells the other this about life in the silo, in the essential prison. They put us in this game, a game where breaking the rules means we all die, every single one of us. But living by those rules means we all suffer. And I offer that as a kind of way of understanding the tension with the law of God here. Paul is picturing the law in its perfection, its righteousness, but operating in a broken world. It's functioning with broken people like the silo. The law has become a kind of jailer. So Paul says, as we just heard Rene read here in verse 23, the slavery of the silo was never meant to be our life. The imprisonment that we experienced was not what life was supposed to be. The yearning of our hearts, we know this, that we were meant for something more than this experience, life and light and someone who is ready to open the door of our prison and welcome us into his family. So that's my sneaky, because a lot of women aren't here, sci-fi illustration for this morning. But let's press into the passage then with three facts about our would-be jailer, the law. So verses 15 through 18. If the law can be compared to a jailer, he has forgotten the promise. He has forgotten the promise. Indeed, there's much here, isn't there, that has been forgotten. There's a, there's a history here which Paul is implying that the Judaizers, not to say Judaism as a whole, has utterly forgotten. If they ever knew it. What have they forgotten? Well, they've forgotten that they were meant to be the people of the promise and not people of the law. The key verse, says commentators, is verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, I know reading this, and if you were listening to Renee as she was reading this, it sounds somehow obscure, kind of culturally technical in a way that is foreign to us. But really, the idea behind it is quite familiar to us, as Kurt showed us last week. This is the essentials of the gospel. We know that, or we're pretty sure, that Galatians was the first book of the New Testament which was written, even before the gospels. And so here is kind of the proto-gospel. 
the first foundations of the gospel laid out by Paul to a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. And here, in the mountain range of the history of Israel, are the two traditional mountain peaks, Abraham and Moses, the promise and the law. And Paul begins by telling the Galatians, you can't have it both ways. Verse 18, salvation is either by the promise or it's by the law. I love how John Stott distinguishes between them. This is a quote from his commentary. In the promise to Abraham, God said, I will, I will, I will. But in the law of Moses, God says, thou shalt, thou shalt not. The promise sets forth a religion of God, God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law sets forth a religion of man, man's duty, man's works, man's responsibility. The promise, standing for the grace of God, had only to be believed. But the law, standing for works of men, had to be obeyed. God's dealings with Abraham were in the category of promise, grace, and faith. But God's dealings with with Moses were in the category of law, commandments, and works. I found John Stott particularly helpful on this passage. I've drawn from him much here from his commentary. But you get the inescapable impression as you read this, that even in the Gospels, that the mountain of the law had come to so dominate the landscape that the promise made to Abraham had been forgotten. It's true that the Jews of Jesus' day prided themselves that they were children of Abraham, but what they believed that they gained from him was pedigree, but what they had gained from Moses was life. There's a telling moment, I don't know if you remember this story in John chapter 9, where a, a posse of uh, Pharisees has come to investigate a quite astonishing miracle. It, it regards something that had never happened before, and it happened right there in Jerusalem, in the precincts of the temple, because there was a man there who had been born blind. And it was understood that there was no miracle that had ever been performed to cure someone who had been born with blindness. And yet, somebody has turned up from out of nowhere and healed this man who was born blind. And the Pharisees, this is the irony, right? They cannot see what's happened and what this means. And so they're talking to Bartimaeus, that's the name of the man, and they say to him, you are his disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. And I think that's so telling. That's how powerful the law had become among Jews in the first century. And so we shouldn't be surprised that its roots were reaching right into the young Christian church and needed to be counted. And here is Paul's lightning strike claim. This is the axe at the trunk and roots of Mosaic Judaism, which will shock you when you hear them as they shocked me. This is the gospel of Paul, which must have outraged them when they heard it, that Christianity is the religion of Abraham and not of Moses. It's the religion of Abraham and not of Moses. And to illustrate the priority of the promise of the gospel, Paul takes this theme, doesn't he? Verse 15, of funerals, inheritances, and readings of the last will and testament. To give a human example, brothers, he says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In other words, someone can't come along after the person has died and change their will. 
This was true in the Greek world, it's still true in this world. If someone writes a will and has written there, I'm going to leave all my money in a trust for our cat, the husband can't do anything about it. He can't object, or he can object, but he can't do much beyond that. He's up a creek without a paddle. But once ratified, this will is the will. It cannot be annulled. It cannot be avoided. Uh, not avoided. It cannot be changed. Its effect will continue perpetually because God has spoken it. So today, 4,000 years later, the promise made to Abraham is in effect for you. Which means that whatever the law is, it has not superseded the promise. There is a greater mountain than the mountain of the law, and they had utterly forgotten it. And this is the promise, right? This is, I think, where we get a bit lost, where Galatians is so helpful to us. The promise wasn't the process. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Absolutely. Genesis 15, 16, justification by faith alone. But that is not the promise. As if the gospel was simply a kind of get out of jail free card. No, the promise is the one to whom the promise is made. Isn't that striking? The promise is Christ. And it's there in Genesis. I will give you, he says, a seed. And the word can be translated offspring or child or descendant. To your seed I will give the land. And in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the commentators will tell you that the noun seed or offspring is a, is a collective noun, meaning Christ and all who are in him. So there's been a tendency for the church, hasn't there, to forget the unity of scripture and the timeline of history and the central core message. We're told in some quarters that the Old Testament taught that people could be saved by keeping the law and the new testament teaches that people can be saved by receiving grace that is precisely not what the bible says or paul would not be teaching this there has only ever been one way to be right with god from the faintest hints of it in the curses to adam and eve in eden to the passover lamb in egypt to the great hope of Messiah in Isaiah 53, to the cross and to the empty tomb, it is the offspring that was promised. As we said in our assurance, it is Christ who has been risen for our justification and the promise has been kept through Christ's keeping of the law. If the church forgets that, if it says we can dispense with the Old Testament, it has forgotten everything because the cross then is misunderstood. Second, if the law can be compared to a jailer, the jailer cannot help but condemn you. The jailer cannot help but condemn you, verses 19 through 22. Of course, this is the very question that Paul has been anticipating. He, the former Pharisee, knows his stuff enough to know the next question that will be asked. So his view is so counter to that of the Judaizers that this must have been the question he's waiting for. If the law is as damaging and misleading as you say, Paul, pray, tell us why the Almighty should ever have given it to his people, to Israel. And this is where it gets a bit thick here. So you'll need to look at the Bible because we're going to be tracing the argument from verses 19 through 22. It has several dimensions to it. 
where Paul is explaining the purposes of the law. Right, are you ready? First of all, verse 19, the law is temporary. We get understandably confused about these things. The Jews of Paul's day were saying that the law was eternal, that it had no beginning, that it would last forever. But, Paul says, it had a beginning and it will not last forever. It is temporary. Notice Paul says it was added 430 years after the promise was given and it will come to an end when the promise himself comes. Second, the, the law was needed, he says, in a sinful world. There were purposes for it. Verse 19b, it was added because of transgressions. You know, for us as Christians, Calvin said, there are three good purposes for the law after the cross. It is a rule of life for us, showing us what pleases God. It's a, it's a signpost to Christ. And it's a tool to restrain sin in our lives, that as we, we read the law, we're reminded of what God wants from us, what pleases him, and that sin has consequences, so that we're dealing with a tame lion. Keeping the law now doesn't make us right with God, but it shows us what God is pleased by. But in a world without Christ, imagine, without the Spirit in their hearts, the law had different purposes. Commentators are not sure about several phrases in this famously difficult passage. Because of transgressions is one of them. Tim Kaler's uh, commentary, I think, is helpful at this point. The law, he says, did not come to tell us about salvation, but it came to tell us about sin. The law's purpose was to reveal to people their sin. A bit like those lights that uh, dermatologists shine on people's faces to show them where all the UV damage is in their skin. That's the kind of purpose of the law. It doesn't fix sin, but it brings it into sharp relief. It shows it to us. The law was not only temporary, it was preparatory. It was added, we notice, to make us long for the keeper of the promise, the offspring who would come. You'll notice if you read the Bible that the space for that person was protected in the history of Israel. To my mind, this explains that rather odd encounter, which people have often blamed God for, with Uzzah. Do you remember Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6, the man who, walking beside the Ark of the Covenant as it was returning to Jerusalem, the horse stumbled or the cart destabilized for a moment and he reached out to touch the law, to touch the Ark of the Covenant and he fell dead at that moment. Why? Because it was a sign, again, to everyone that only the promise could touch the law of God. Only Christ could dwell in that space. And so verse 19d, the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary, another difficult phrase to interpret. But it has to do with, uh, with degrees of separation from God. Paul is explaining here how the law is so inferior to the promise. And if nothing else, it's because it comes third hand. But the promise has come directly to Abraham from God the Father. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? God forbid, it says in some versions. How could the law be contrary to the promises of God. Paul is showing us they come from the same heart, 
the same mind, the same conscience, the same reasoning, but they have two entirely different purposes. One is the horse and the other is the cart, and the Judaizers have put the cart before the horse. Their teaching was always this, keep the law and you will gain life, but their entire claim was hypothetical. Yes, if there was a law one could actually keep to save you, you would be saved. But there isn't, and besides, no mortal has ever kept any of it anyway. I think of Luther writing before his tower experience in 1519. This is what he wrote in his diary. Loved God, I hated him. I was angry with God. We are crushed by every kind of calamity under the law. And that was the pivotal moment for Luther when he came across Romans 1.17. Not the 95 Thesis, but the moment that God showed him that another righteousness was needed. Not one that he could do or you could do. Not you being righteous enough or me being good enough. But only the righteousness of Christ applied to our need. So again, Tim Keller is helpful here. His commentary on verse 22. This is the purpose of the law. It shows us. That we do not just fall short of God's will, requiring some extra effort to do better, but that we are completely under sin's power, requiring rescue. So to sum up, constable version, your mum may think you're lovely, but the law thinks you stink. And that is what might save you. The law cannot help you. You need what only Christ can do for you. And finally, if the law can be compared to a jailer, the jailer cannot keep you there. Not when the promise comes. Verses 23 to 25. Let's look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul has described the law in Galatians by its various roles in a broken world, right? A false gospel, as it's used by the Judaizers. A curse bringer. A revealer to us of our sin. The condemner of those that break it. But we notice that the law cannot keep you imprisoned when Christ comes for you. So Paul has one more picture in verses 24 through 25. He describes the law as a guardian. Now, the word guardian in the original language means teacher or tutor. And in the ancient world, this is what wealthy families usually had. They had a, a tutor who would come. There were no community schools. A tutor would be employed to come to the house, and he would teach your children how to read, how to write, how to do arithmetic or do rhetoric or do logic or be trained for their particular vocation. And I guess the, uh, Paul is encouraging the Galatians to think of their experience, to think of the strictest, most demanding, meanest tutor they ever had, and that would be the law they're about to sign up with. I've been reading a biography of C.S. Lewis called Jack by his friend George Sayers. And in the book, Sayers recounts probably the most terrible period in Jack's early life, when his mother, having just died when he was nine years old, his father, who was falling apart, sent Jack to boarding school in England. And Sayers says it was run by, quote, a certainly brutal and probably insane tyrant. And both boys wrote uh, letters, pathetic letters home, 
begging to be taken away. And Warney, this is Warney writing, Warney Lewis's brother, remembering that their education there consisted entirely of learning uh, their lessons wrote by heart. So the class would stand in front of their teacher while reciting their lessons, and as some trembling boy, he says, blundered through his task, the teacher, the, the, the principal, would say in a tone of anticipatory relish, holding on to his wand of bamboo, give me my cane, I shall soon need it. The glories of a 20th century English private school education. And if that wasn't bad enough, it was in my hometown, which is a total shame. Actually, there were worse things. Not only the teacher would beat the boys, but his own daughters also. And Sayers notes, all of this happened while Lewis was receiving the clearest education on Christian belief he was to receive in his entire education. The hypocrisy is palpable. That's what the Guardian does to a sinful heart. If you've learned one lesson, Paul is saying to the Galatians, under the care of the law, if you've been looking at it as a way to be saved, it's that you should never, ever want to go back. The jailer cannot keep you now that Christ has come. Faith has come, Paul says here. Imagine those little boys at the end of turn running to hug their father, Albert, come all the way from Ireland and not wanting to let him go. You've come, you've come. Let's fly from this place and never return again here. In closing, bringing these strands together and extending the metaphor just a little bit further, the guardian of the law, you will notice, does not give up its charges easily. It expects payment for broken law. It demands ransom for captives. That someone might be cursed, someone has to go to jail. Someone has to stand where Uzzah couldn't. So the father arrives for the prodigal son or daughter but he leaves behind another in your place to be the promise for you, to bear the curse for you, to receive in your place the beatings due for all the disobedience, failure and sin of God's people before the law. So the best student ever to attend the school is someone from outside it and someone who is killed by it. And Isaiah tells us, but because of our sins, he was wounded, beaten because of the evil we did. We are healed by the punishment he suffered, made whole by the blows he received. All of us were like sheep that were lost, each of us going his own way. But the Lord made the punishment fall on him. The punishment all of us deserved. For your sake... Jesus didn't walk out of that classroom, at least not without dying first. But he was raised for your justification. And Paul tells us this is the power of the law now. It is perfect. It is the will of God written form presented to us. It is righteous. It is not to one degree out of step with the plan of God. Yet it was meant all along, not for you to keep it, but for Christ to keep it to bear your punishment in your place so that you might leave at the end of term 
and be rightly claimed by your Father in heaven and be taken home. This is the paradox of the law. This is what they had forgotten. It is what now the church is beginning to forget in its calls to jettison the Old Testament. It had to be broken by us that it might be kept by the promise by Christ so that we could, by Christ's spirit and by his grace, be able to be in the position to obey God with a whole heart of gratitude for the promise keeper. So this is what holiness is. This is what it's meant to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength in a way that no one ever could have because of Christ. That in great gratitude and rejoicing because of Jesus with his spirit within us, we might now want to please our Lord and Saviour. The promise and the law and both are fulfilled in Christ. Let's pray as we come to communion. Father, this is at one level so abstract and so technical and so theological. But each of us, when we have to look in the mirror at the end of the day and have to face the reality of our sin that we keep on breaking this law, must come to this same promise with great hope and with great earnestness and say, thank you, Father, for sending your son. Thank you for giving him up for our sakes. Thank you that he was killed in our place that we might receive the benefits of the law keeping of Christ and that we now might be made right with you by his work as we come to communion Lord would you show us this again in Christ's name Amen